Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. This is the good stuff. Yeah. It's the Laugh Podcast. I'm one of two hosts, Richard Lusk over there. Directly across from me is Mr. Ryan Bull. How are you, sir? Howdy. Doing well. You're listening to the latest episode of the Laugh Podcast on uh, number 167. You can find our other episodes over there on the iTunes, where you can leave us a review. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Uh, we have an interesting segment later on today's show. A friend of mine, Nelson Snodgrass, he wanted to give his review of the Bourne movie. So, look, looking forward to that. Always nice to have a third opinion. Uh, and then we also have an update on the penultimate week of the box office challenge. That'll be coming up later on today's show. I'm sure you guys are all uh, worried about old Mr. Lusk over here and how he's going to do, how he's going to fare, how well he fared over the Jason Bourne franchise uh, movies that are coming out here. Yeah, you really don't want to have to drink that Sriracha milkshake, do you? No. Sad. But for today's episode, Mr. Bull and I will be reviewing Gr- Paul Greengrass's next installment of the Bourne franchise, uh, air quotes, Jason Bourne which finds the CIA agent drawn once again out of the shadows to face new challenges and danger. I know who I am. When we are finished with you, you'll no longer be yourself. I remember. I remember everything. Remembering everything doesn't mean you know everything. Tell me. We've just been hacked. Could be worse than Snowden. Facial recognition got a hit. Jesus Christ, that's Jason Bourne. Why would he come back now? That was from the trailer. For Paul Greengrass's uh, Jason Bourne, this was written and directed by Paul Greengrass, and the editor, Christopher Rouse, was also involved in the writing of this. I wonder if he got that writing credit before or after they made the movie. I think it was leading into the movie. Like, I wonder, a lot of those movies seem to have been made in the editing process, or could have been created in the editing process. Yeah, that's something I want to get into. I I think they did a lot of pre-playing. I think these two guys worked together a lot. Fair enough. Everything out. This stars uh, Matt Damon again, reprising his role as Jason Bourne. He's joined uh, joined by Julia Stiles once again as uh, Nikki Parsons, another major character in the Bourne uh, universe. Was she in that last one with uh, Jeremy Renner? No, can't remember. Uh, newcomers Tommy Lee Jones is CIA director Robert Dewey and Alicia Vikander. The fetching Alicia Vikander stars as uh, Heather Lee, along with Vincent Cassell as the asset, and newcomer Riz Ahmed stars as Aaron Kalor. Riz Ahmed was in um, in the Night of. He is sort of a I don't know Zuckerberg type figure, Facebook kind of thing. In this movie. Uh, so, Mr. Bull, the movie franchise, or the movie landscape, sorry, is littered with franchises and universes. From Star Wars to Star Trek, from DC to Marvel, 
also with Fast and Furious and Mission Impossible. Is there room and a need in the landscape for yet another movie franchise? And if so, does this movie justify the existence of that born universe? I mean, the short answer, I think, is yes. I think the American public likes film franchises, and they also like spy films. And for the most part, Jason Bourne is a really good spy movie. It's based on the hit series of novels written by Robert Ludlum, and then they've continued on after his death and done quite a few more. In fact, I think Ludlum only did three, so the Bourne character changed with the fourth book. I like how these movies have changed with the fourth and now fifth film. You know, Jeremy Renner did the Bourne legacy and some people didn't like where that was going, but that's getting a sequel here in 2018. They want to do more Bourne movies after this. Uh, apparently this is the start of what they're hoping to be a new trilogy of Bourne films. I like it. I like this Bourne character and what they're doing uh, with him where he's uh, more silent, you know, not... I, I like that he's, you can tell a lot's going through his mind. You know, he's taking in the situation, but there's no needless talking, no needless action. It's much more in keeping with his character in the novels and just, you know, very conflicted about his past and that that causes him all sorts of uh, pain. You know, in the books, he's, uh, he realizes his real name is David Webb. So at times he's David Webb and he talks about having to become Jason Bourne again, you know, to go on another mission. So, I like it. I'm ready for more Bourne movies. I know the critics weren't too big on this. It was about 50-50 on Rotten Tomatoes right now. But the cinema scores for the audiences coming out of this film's at an A-. minus. So, audiences definitely like this. I think this film's going to hold up well, even though it goes up against the Juggernaut, Suicide Squad, and that's for this week. Mm -hmm. uh, the theater I was in had quite a bit of uh, people over the age of 35, I would say. So I think this is going to play well, but there were still, uh, with those older audiences, it's going to play well, but there were still a lot of teenagers in the audience. So I think it has broad appeal. What do you think? Is this a new film franchise? To me, this was the worst movie of the Bourne trilogy. <laughs> I didn't, I, here we go again in terms of action movies and how far we differ in, uh, as far as likability goes or as far as enjoyment with the movie goes. I agree with you about the character of Jason Bourne. Mm -hmm. Like I like, I like him. I like uh, Matt Damon. I think he's believable as that character. Um, I also like, as you said, seeing what he does and seeing him get into and out of situations. So the best parts of the movie involve him doing those things. Um, I like some of the new characters like uh, Alicia Vikander. <laughs> really? Yeah, I thought she was one of the weakest parts of the film. She was a, I'm sorry, the new actress. I should have said actress. I like her in it. Actually, this movie was mostly her story, I think. She was the protagonist. She kind of moved most of the movie. And I did think that that was a weakness, but that's more of a plot point than a character point. Uh, I don't think she does an American accent well, but I like looking at her. <laughs> she kept my uh, interest. I think she does well with good actors, or good directors. Like, it depends on who her director is, and they can get a good performance out of her. She won an Oscar for a Danish girl, right? Or at least a nomination. <laughs> uh, and I thought she was awesome in the next Machina a couple years ago. I just saw a movie with her where she plays an author. Um, Testament of Youth? Yeah. 
and she was she was pretty good in that. In this movie, she's just sort of I don't know maybe window dressing. So I, I don't really like the character, but I do like the actress, and I like the actress uh, Julia Stiles. But again, I have problems with the character. Um, there's another character that's new that I don't know if he's a part of the franchise or not, but he, I guess he's a trope or or a, sort of a stereotype within the spy. Um, sort of movie genre, and that's the asset played by Vincent Cassell. I really like them doing that. Um, yeah. You kind of get that spy versus spy vibe. Yeah. And in the novels, uh, Bourne was constantly going after this guy, Carlos, mm-hmm. who's also known as the Jackal. If you've ever seen that Richard Gere movie, The Jackal, so I think The Day of the Jackal from the 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there is this other assassin spy guy out there. I like the way they go back and forth, and I think it adds an extra dimension and complexity to it. He's also the physical antagonist for Bourne, mm-hmm. where Bourne, uh, he is the uh, the target. I guess the, the image that appears inside of the, uh, the, the, the gun sights for Bourne. And I like what they do with him. Uh, some of the best stuff in terms of stunts are with that character. So he was good as the asset in this movie. But I, for all of them, I think that the, the script let him down. And I think it's because they're beholden to this template that you sort of liked, I guess. And I just don't think it pulls it off. I, I don't think that there's enough there for Jason Bourne to, to be in this, uh, back in the situation where he was at stage one. And I think that's what they wanted. <laughs> I think the very first movie, The Bourne Identity, he can't remember who he is, and he's sort of trying to piece it together. And now they're adding more layers to his backstory, which seem to come out of nowhere and don't really. Uh, I I think that they're just there as um, you know perfunctory elements to, so that we could have another movie experience with this guy. It's just a setup for more stunts. Uh, That's how I see it. He's always been a character who's haunted by his past, either being unable to remember it. Or what has happened to him in the past. You know, the loss of his wife was a big motivating factor for most of the last trilogy with him. So, you know, I didn't mind that. I do have problems with the plot. I know they were trying to set this in a post-Snowden world. And one of the problems now is with cameras everywhere, with surveillance everywhere, it's hard to move around in the shadows because there really aren't shadows anymore. Yeah, but the movie isn't consistent with that point either, so. Yeah, um, there's... A lot of pitfalls when you start. But there's a scene where he's scoping out um, an asset. Or, you know, he's got to go talk to this guy. And he knows this guy's under surveillance. And he's got his little monoscope out. And he's looking at the areas and going right there. And I thought, well, at first, well, that's really convenient. How quickly, you know, he's able to spot the guys. And I thought, well, he knows where he would set up people. Because he's done this sort of thing before. He knows how the game's played, so he knows where the figures should be on the board. Yeah, maybe that makes and, sense for and, him. But the the character Jason Bourne is has been chemically enhanced in the series. He's, I mean, he's physically stronger than other people, and he has these in, like huge uh, or um, uh, reflexes in the first movie. Anyway, that, that I mean, they've trained him to be this incredible silent assassin who can move in and out of. Um, situations and is physically and mentally uh, superior to everybody, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much everybody. 
Um, this movie doesn't even really play. It doesn't even suggest that. It's just, it doesn't go back to that. It doesn't, I mean, it really, he's, he beats up quite a few people. Yeah. But he so gets does, out of complex situations. So does Ethan Hawke. I mean, or Ethan, Jeremy or, Renner. Well, Jeremy Renner is part of the same program. I'm saying they didn't do enough to establish that this program sets him up as being, uh, someone special, someone extraordinary. Cause he is a superhero. He's essentially a superhero. But this is our fourth movie with him. We know it. We don't need yeah, to but be bashed over the head with it. I don't think being bashed over the head for the casual moviegoer, a person that's going just paying their dime to see a movie, they should at least be put into a world where things make sense and they connect to other, you know, uh, I mean, there's a, there's a continuity throughout the movie. The things shouldn't just be thrown in there. I, I didn't see that, and I don't think people are going in going, "Who's this Jason Bourne really? guy?" Because you haven't <laughs> seen him since two thousand seven, so he's been it's eleven years or nine ten years. These are movies that have played constantly on TNT and have right. been very popular. That may or the may not be a are good very point. popular, but uh, I think they're trying to make him more like Bond and less like uh, Batman. I don't think he's like either. Well, this he's, movie's a lot like Batman. He has some gadgets, but it's more. The the thing that always came across to me in the novels was Bourne's able to see all the angles and he understands what's going on. If he's going to go into a city, he's got all the streets in that city me- memorized. So there's a motorcycle chase uh, early on in the film and they're trying to cut him off. And I thought they did a very nice job visually showing how he was kind of boxed in and he was going to have to take this real um, circuitous route. So, you know, it also explained why he was constantly changing directions. Well, the Bourne character is going to know the whole city like the back of his hand. Yeah, but the um, movie doesn't establish that. I, I think that that was established like, in the earlier films, how well he knows Europe. I saw the earlier films. I'm an astute moviegoer, and I kind of like the Bourne character. I didn't know. I didn't realize that. I didn't know that he, how could he make his living? Because my, my basic question was, how could he make his living as a cage fighter? Um, you know, on the Greek Albanian border. And, uh, I mean, I know he's going to have to fight. He's going to, he's going to wind up fighting some pretty impressive warriors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason, is, and he's not, I mean, he doesn't look physically more imposing than anybody else necessarily. So I just wanted to know how does his character exist in this world? And it's because of his training. And he's also been chemically changed. I mean, he's been, but don't they, sh- by having him fight these, imposing guys and take them down with relative ease don't they set up then that not really he, i mean doesn't that prove to the audience yeah Look, that he's he can a, do this that he's a badass but it doesn't prove it doesn't explain why do it you says need that to can? know why because i, I thought a movie so. yeah. you don't want to have to spend a whole lot of time with exposition and being lectured to it's better to just show them here look this guy's awesome yeah in some movies yeah but not in this movie where how do you know why is Jason Bourne so much better than everybody else? He and just then, is. Yeah, but but that doesn't it's not enough for me. It doesn't it makes for a, a problem in the movie and in okay. the telling of the movie. Uh, 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 okay. Um th- that's fine character wise. I-, I thought visually, I mean, while this is a real fast cut film and generally I don't like those, I'm not I wasn't a big fan of the Bourne Ultimatum or Bourne Supremacy. Greengrass's first two Bourne films because of some of the quick cuts. I thought it worked a lot better in this movie, and he was able to balance a lot of characters and a lot of 
um, stories all at the same time. You know, going back to that scene in Athens, there's a huge riot going on. I mean, just the scale of that scene is impressive. The number of extras you have to have, setting up all the cameras to catch, you know, the action from various angles. I mean, a character just walking down the street is going to be shown from five or six different shots. Which so, is about three or four shots too many. And the movie, those scenes, those set pieces go on way too long. And you could have, it's a two and a hour, two to ten hour movie, two hours and ten minutes long or something like that, two hours and eight minutes long. If you took f- ten minutes off of both of those big action set pieces at the beginning and at the end, you would have had a better movie. Uh, they spend way too much time with that. I, I was of those. highly impressed. I would love to see some of the behind the scenes stuff. They had to be doing a lot of stuff with set replacement and even uh, creating crowds. I mean, just because the number of people that they were working with was well, they did huge. shut down the Las Vegas Strip. They, I saw a featurette on that. So. Yeah, I mean that that's another one. All that stuff in Vegas. I mean, they go to a large convention, you know, and you're in hotels, casinos, just managing that much and knowing what you're going to shoot. I know you, you know, you felt like this movie was discovered in the editing room. They had to have had this planned out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. And they filmed this pretty quick. I mean, it was only like two, two and a half months of filming, which for a big budget action film, you know, is uh, medium, maybe a little on the thin side. So Greengrass had to know what he was doing and had to be really well prepared. And if you're going to do this type of quick cuts, you have to be meticulous. Well, you can also get a whole bunch of... You can also get a whole bunch of coverage with multiple cameras. I mean, I'm sure that they use that technique as well. So the average shot length in this movie was less than, it had to have been less than two seconds. And you couple that with the handheld camera and you don't stretch out those sequences uh, any more than that average shot length. Like if you don't have intercut maybe seven or eight second scenes and they're all one and a half seconds, it for me, it makes me queasy. It makes me angry, actually. It's a visual assault. Uh, and I was wondering why. I was wondering what it is about this movie that I didn't like so much. And I think it is that. It's the average shot length and the queasy cam. And I was wondering why I like The Raid so much. And other movies that have similar editing styles. The, the Raid and The Raid Redemption, the average shot length was 4.3. And 5.3 for The Raid too. It's quite a bit longer than two seconds. Yeah, but yeah, because I, I think that they're doing a lot more in the in between with us, you know, settling the camera down and making it seem, um, I don't know, like pacing things out with through the dialogue and and exposing part of the plot. Whereas this movie kept up that editing style, even when they're just having a, a regular conversation or when they're in the control room or something like that, and. Um, there's a back and forth between Dewey and Heather Lee and, and, or they're riding in a car or something. And, and I think if you don't break it up, the monotony and the, the quick cutting is too much for my little brain to handle. <laughs> and it makes me uncomfortable. And it's, I was sort of angry. I, I don't know. I, I thought they were doing a good job. Also, sometimes with the quick cuts, you're having to scan the frame for, you know, what's the piece of action and, they don't do a good job of keeping your eyes in the same spot and you know, moving you around. I thought this film learned a lot of lessons from Mad Max Fury Road, you know, where a lot of the action is center framed. I thought this movie did that as well. So I wasn't having to scan the extremities. I thought the fight scenes, while they were quick cuts, I was still able to follow the action 
hmm. pretty well. And I thought, you know, they were holding for just a couple of extra frames where like uh, the chase sequence in the born supremacy at the end of that film, the car chase, I thought that was utterly incomprehensible. I went back and rewatched it and I still think it is these. I felt still real quick, but just a couple extra frames. And that was all I needed. Well, I went back and looked at the scene, uh, the virtuoso scene, uh, where the handheld camera follows Bourne through the window. Mm -hmm. And the chase scene, I think it was the uh, Bourne ultimatum. And that, I just tweeted it out, actually, is on YouTube. I think it's about a four or five minute long segment. uh, It has, it encapsulates what I do like about Bourne, but it also includes other things in it that make me understand why I like that movie a little bit better than this movie. There was a, there was a joke in the middle of that scene. I mean, I think uh, Nikki Parsons fish hooks a guy and it shows how much weaker she is than say the Jason Bourne character. I mean, that movie and that segment does a, is it was funnier and it was better paced and faster or, or more interesting than this entire movie for me. I just didn't, I didn't get it. This movie didn't do it for me. Didn't do it visually, and it didn't do it in terms of plot. Oh, so I, I just I thought it, it was a send up of that spy stuff. Um, there's a scene where he has to meet with a guy out in a giant open space. He knows that you know someone's going to be ready to shoot him if he goes out in the space. And the trick is, how does he get his target away so he can talk to him? You know, how do you create a diversion? That to me is classic the spy fire stuff. Yeah, oh, I'm just trying not to spoil anything. Okay. But just, you know, that moving through crowds, staying low, I like all that spycraft. And I thought this film did a good job with that. At times, um, I agree. The The car chases are really strong, I felt. And they're not making the cars do a whole lot of stuff that they can't do, with the exception of the uh, SWAT team vehicle okay. at the end. I'm glad you mentioned that. With the exception of that. Well, that was a major scene else. in the movie, and it There's, was a, it was a tacked on scene that didn't it wasn't necessary. It wasn't necessary. If you have the chance to be on the Vegas Strip, we've seen what one, maybe two other action movies ever be on the Vegas Strip. I don't know. I'm thinking of Con Air. The end of that film goes to the Vegas Strip, but not many other films. But it's a really iconic location that the audience is instantly going to recognize. Yeah. But the motorcycle chase at the beginning. That was really strong, I felt. And they weren't making the motorcycle do things it can't do. They just made it do what it can do for too long. And the and the fight scene at the um some of the fight scenes went too too long too, and they were just tacked on to other unnecessary things. Uh, I also didn't like all right, so the, technically the movie worked for you, it didn't for me. That's no big surprise. Action spy movies don't generally work for me. Uh, So you have to take my criticism of it with a grain of salt. But in terms of story, the movie insists on its profundity. And it's trying to make these broad-based thematic claims in this, you know, trying to be like relevant to its time. And I don't even, I don't think that they say it well. They reference Snowden twice. Mm Mm-hmm. Snowden was a thief. Snowden, over three and a half months, stole files off of computers. And let us know how much the government was The letting us know part is one thing. But this breach that they claim, uh, so this is worse than Snowden, or this breach is worse than Snowden, that's not not what the movie is. uh, The movie is trying to make Snowden seem like a hero. And it's trying to make 
this, trying to set the CIA up as this, uh, this villain, this, this institution. And the movie is trying to tear, it's trying to have, I guess it's trying to ride two horses with one ass in that it's, I mean, we want to have cool assassins running around saving us from things, but we also hate the CIA and we hate everything that the CIA stands for. And there's virtually no good people in the CIA. So we're sort of set up to like tear it down. <laughs> I just, I don't like the message and I don't like the movie's insistence on its own message. Uh, okay. But that doesn't mean that the message doesn't have any relevance. No, I just don't think the movie does a good job with it either. Uh, okay. But I mean, it's also hard to know how on target that message is while we're living in the moment. I mean, we are living in a post Snowden world and, when those files got leaked and we saw just how much the government was surveilling us, it was a bit scary and it was a revelation to people. And when they talk about this computer program in the movie, you know, the software that's going to uh, tailor itself to you, the consumer, you know, and almost be able to um, figure out what you're going to do. You know, predictive text is a great example of this with your phone. The only way they do that is by, keeping vast amounts of data on you and running, you know, algorithms through it and figuring that stuff out. It's, we like to, we like that end product, but the scary thing is what could the government do with that stuff? And it is a logical step that we want our government to be able to surveil terrorists and everything. And I think you're talking people about- before they do stuff, but the only way we figure out who's going to do it is logically to follow everyone. <laughs> Right, and you and I are of t- two different minds on this politically yeah. because, to me, it's the same thing. Like, I don't think that there should be a, an expectation that anything you do online is private mm-hmm. in, in any in any way, shape, or form. And it's, I mean, I know that mine is a minority view, and most people think that you should be able to have private phone conversations. For example, I don't necessarily disagree, but I'm also aware enough of human nature to realize that if you transmit things electronically, it's the same thing as yelling them out your window. So if I open up a window and give out granny's bunt cake recipe, I can't be upset if the woman across the street starts using it on her own. And that's to me, that's the same thing as making a phone call or uh, putting things on the internet or putting things in computers. I mean, you sign up for that. Yeah, but you're, you're missing. Okay. That's information you're putting out there. But that information can create new information about you predictively. Um, there was a New York Times article from like three years ago. A uh, man was upset when Target sent his daughter coupons for um, pregnancy vitamins. And he's like, my daughter's not pregnant. And then he found out, oh, yes, she is. Target figured it out by her purchasing history. You know, the people who buy these items over right. this time period are pregnant and they're going to need vitamins at month five. So let's send them a coupon for it. That's what's happening. That's what people are scared about. Well, I, not that the government knows what you're thinking now, but that it's going to be able to figure out what you're thinking in the future. I think those might be relevant themes, and they might be they might even be important. I don't think this movie does that. I think it's trying to. I think it's desperately trying to come up with a, making a salient point about those things, but I don't think it does it very well. I don't think it's trying to make a huge point. Really, I think it puts the CIA director on the same stage with David with Zuckerberg. I mean, that's. I think it's living in a post Snowden world. And the idea that government and Silicon Valley could be in bed together, 
Uh, well, Snowden didn't it, really. It, Snowden, it, Snowden's not really. Snowden was more about, um, as far as I know, the way the NSA is looking or abusing the Patriot mm-hmm. Act. And it's less about connecting um, Google to the CIA mainframe. So, it, it, but I mean, all of that is, is beside the point. I think that, that uh, the movie itself is trying to make those connections and it doesn't. Well, it, I, it, it, it might be leading to another movie. Okay. It couldn't have told a continuing story of Bourne, you know, when the last Bourne movie was 2007. It couldn't keep up in that same world because the world has changed in you know the last ten years, so it had to update stuff. And unfortunately, the government has always been one of the enemies of Bourne in these films. The CIA and Bourne have always been at odds. So yeah, I'm not shocked CIA, that the CIA director doesn't get along with Bourne in this. Uh, I'm not shocked by it. I'm just not entertained by it. How can you not be entertained by Tommy Lee Jones? I was so happy to see him back there, and he he chews the uh, dialogue. Just the right amount. Old raccoon eyes. Oh, and I swear that guy hasn't gotten older since you know <laughs> yeah, Men in Black. I think he's gotten older. I think he's gotten considerably older. Oh. I didn't need to see a whole lot of close-ups of uh, of Tommy. That weathered face. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you're too busy looking at his sidekick. At least you have a camera. They put her on stay uh, you know, on film a lot in close-up. Well, they also have to put her up in close-up because she's so tiny. She is slight. They they have to try and make her seem the same size as everyone else in the scene. Yeah, put her put her on a box. I don't. Yeah, Dewey was the worst CIA director of all time, and I I don't understand why his immediate response to Bourne is what it is or what it turns out to be in the movie. It's just so uh, I don't know perfunctory. Well. I, I liked it. I thought technically it was a very well-made film. Well said, then. So. Make a good argument for it. Do we need I, to, I agree with most Do we of need to get into spoilers? Yeah, I think so, because I want to explain my point about him being a bad CIA director. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. Okay. All right. So I thought you were going to do the bit. There, there is a horrible, horrible uh, plot hole. That they have in there. One? Oh, yeah. There's a huge one. It, it motivates most of the action after the opening scene. Tell me so I can be angry, even angrier. All right. The malware that they put on the files. <laughs> that she back ends into it? Yeah, she puts it on there. Okay, fine. I, I, I would even think you'd already have that on there. So if people were to steal your files, you <sighs> could do it. You would never look at those files on a computer that's connected to the internet or has the capability to, to connect to the internet. Oh, God. Yeah. The, the I idea, mean, but I mean, even before that, the idea that the CIA would have folders marked black ops <laughs> for people to access, like have a folder. Well, you need the security clearance to get there. You have to organize Does your it have stuff. to say? <laughs> I think all you got to do is search for something with two syllables and the word either like stone or hard or break in it. You don't have to have black ops folder. Black ops folder. Come on. Call it blue ops. Uh, again. They throw off the hacker. Isn't that a cheat you need to make when you're visually trying to move your story along? Similarly. I mean, if you want to get mad at that, Alicia Vikander reads a file on Bourne that has quotes from the report. Yeah. So we don't have to read the whole report. Right. We just get the doctor's quotes about how Bourne can be brought the back into quote. the fold. And he also carries around a, a, uh, 
a thumb drive that says encrypted on it. I've never seen a thumb drive with the word encrypted written on it. They could have put top secret on it. <laughs> that would have made it just a little bit easier for our stupid minds to understand. So yeah, that's, I did notice that and I was, yeah. I was kind of annoyed with it. And then also knowing what I know about like Snowden and Manning and how they made their, uh, how they, how they stole their files. It was basically like, a janitor coming in at night and taking files out of a, a mm-hmm. file cabinet over a long extended period of time. So the instant access and being able to, to micromanage um, an assault in real time, which is what they did when he was in Berlin, mm-hmm. but then not really using that technology when he's in Las Vegas. It didn't, it, it didn't make any sense. And it was, Oh, yeah, yeah, let alone you'd have people in the hotel's control room so that they can access the elevators and shut them down. Right. Or, uh, yeah. Plus, there's he gets triangulated by all of this technology, mm-hmm. and they can they can see that he's on a computer, and they have a layout of the entire room that he's in in real time, and yet he's able to kill, th- or, kill or knock out mm-hmm. uh, three top agents and then sort of just disappear. I don't, I think that the movie just, it insults our intelligence a little bit too much. Right I, I also think it's getting harder and harder to make that plausible in a world where we have so much electronic surveillance in the seventies. Eh, you could probably do some of this, but stuff. just cause it's so hard. Does, I mean, how about the disguise factor that they use in mission impossible or, or heck in uh usual suspects, you, you know, they're, they're able to. You're able to affect a certain uh, characteristic in that movie that you can use in this movie. You know, you, you don't. It, it doesn't have to be okay. We can find him in an instant's notice, halfway across the world, by hacking into these surveillance cameras that exist all over Europe. But he can also, when it's convenient for him as a character to get away, just kind of walk away. They they need to have that extra step that allows for us to understand he's made it into the sewer or something, or mm-hmm. he's gone ahead of everybody and you know surveilled all of the surveillance cameras and taken them out. Are. Yeah, I mean they could do that, but they want to spend too much time having cars fly into buildings. And uh, the weirdest thing about this, though, one of the worst things is the uh, there's a five line exchange between Heather Lee and Calhor that. It left me, I mean, it left my mouth open because the CIA director, Dewey, who has this clandestine relationship in this movie world with the Mark Zuckerberg character, the Call of Horror character, mm-hmm. doesn't realize that this same guy went to school with and possibly had some type of relationship with, or maybe dated, the head of his cybersecurity force. The head of cybersecurity. That's pretty bad if you're the CIA director and you're the head of cybersecurity had a relationship in college with the kind of, you know the the leader of uh what is it social media in this world. I would say that that's the least plausible thing that happens in this movie. Well, don't you think though they put that scene in there to explain why Alicia Vikander at such a young age is so high up in the CIA and why she's so good with computers. Oh, I thought it was just service to another movie. Oh, see, I thought this is the maybe next that movie. also it's the subplot for the, or it's the main plot of the next movie. But I mean, you have to credential her. I mean, that's where that goes back to your point about you want to know why Bourne is so good. 
Don't you want to know why Alicia Vikander's so good? Well, apparently she went to Stanford and yeah, was I got, top of her class. I got that line. Yeah, but you were just I got complaining that line. about it. I know, it. but I got that line. No, I'm complaining about the fact that James Dewey or Huey Dewey doesn't know that she knows him. How and he's the head that? of... How would he know? How, how do you know that he doesn't know that? Because he introduces them. He doesn't yeah. act like he doesn't know them. He introduces them together and he and he says, you wouldn't, uh, I'm not sure you would know this person. You don't think he's, yeah, yeah, why maybe. would he give away all the information so he knows? Yeah. All right. All right. Yeah. Okay. I guess I got to give it credit that doesn't, like That's also. very plausible that he wants to make it seem like he, he doesn't it. know it's as much. It's not plausible he doesn't know it. And the movie sets up that he doesn't know it. The movie is also setting up other sequels and I, I don't like the teeing up the sequels either part of it. Also, I don't understand why why does Nikki Parsons who in this movie is just the Enterprise, really. She's the Enterprise because they dispatch of her and uh-huh. then nobody has anything to say about her afterwards. So it's like, oh yeah, she's dead. I don't even know if um Jason Bourne really feels that bad about it. And I would be angry too if I were Jason Bourne because why does she come up what what does she how does she help him in any way? How does she help Jason Bourne? She Gives him information about his past. Okay. I don't need to know. He's haunted by his past. That's one of the big parts about his character. Is he any better off now than he was before? Yeah, he's got some more answers. Yeah, answers that they made up to kill the the man who killed his father. But he didn't know that his father had been assassinated. Yeah, he did. No, he didn't. He didn't know who was. He thought it was terrorists that had killed his father. He didn't know it was the government. That's why he signed up for. Okay. But now he actually got to kill the person that killed his father. That he didn't know about before. I feel like we're talking about two separate things here. Well, I don't he think... He signed that... up because he wants to go after terrorists, knowing that you'll probably never get to actually get the terrorists that got your dad. That's tacked He on was motivated by movie. the death of his father and wanting to get revenge. And then it turns out, oh, wait, it's the government that did this to you. Go after the government. In fact, we have the government agent <laughs> yeah. for you. A convenience that... Okay. It's annoying. No, it's not. <laughs> okay. Okay. Thanks for deciding for me what's annoying and not. No, you've told us for the last 15 minutes what you're pissed about yeah. with this film. I think that this is a really well-made film. Overall, it's very enjoyable. Audiences agree. And I feel like you're just nitpicking here. Fair enough. So. I'll let you have the last word on it then. No, I thought we have someone else for the last word. Oh, yeah, that's right. Nelson Snodgrass, my friend Nelson Snodgrass, wanted to weigh in on Jason Bourne before, I think, even seeing it. Yes, this is Nelson Snodgrass, your guest correspondent, weighing in on the latest Bourne movies. Yet again... We have a film of American imperialism, of white males traipsing the globe like reckless troubadours pushing their weight upon the hapless residents of surrounding countries, endangering all that they see. A menace, I say. A menace. I'm tired of it. Aren't you? That's my take on Jason Bourne. May he die and, and rot like 
American capitalism and imperialism well over. I'm gonna ride a rabbit style. I'm gonna drive everybody wild. Okay. So there <laughs> there it is. Jason Bourne from Nelson Snodgrass. It's an interesting take. It's a take. I don't think he saw the same movie though. Yeah. Uh I'm glad he's on our show. Hopefully we can keep him around before Fox News scoops him up. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, so uh, box office challenge. Uh, with Bourne making sixty million this weekend, that brings my total up to five hundred thirty-nine mil. Uh, you still have one film left, and you're at uh, three hundred forty-seven mil. So Suicide Squad has to make uh, two hundred. Yeah, good luck. Uh, they're saying one hundred fifteen to one hundred twenty-five, and some people are saying that's a little low. But you're also going up against the Olympics, so. Mm. Who knows? Are you interested in the Olympics at all? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. Unfortunately, I think we're going to have a huge terrorist attack during the Olympics. That's why you're interested in it? No, I mean, I always like watching the Olympics, but I I think that this will be a turning point in our history. Hmm. I think think we'll have a terrorist attack at the Olympics, Trump gets elected, and then it's a different world. So our next Bourne movie will be living not in a post-Snowden world, but in a post-Trump world. Or a post-Rio world. Yeah. I mean, I hope nothing happens. I hope everything, you know, comes off well and it's a very peaceful event. But but if it happens and you heard it first here on the Laugh Podcast. Yeah, that's my prod- prognostication. All right. So I guess we'll see you on the next show, which will be or should be Suicide Squad, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. So for Mr. Two Frames Bowl over there. It's been a pleasure. I'm the L-Train Poxet Boat, everybody. There be dragons. Are you going to the movies this weekend? Let Laugh know what you saw. Send in your review by emailing the show at thelaughpodcast at gmail.com, tweeting at the Laugh Podcast, or messaging us on facebook.com backslash the Laugh Podcast. The best comments will get read on a future show. 